Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 336, I think. Six or seven, who knows. This week's guest is Jack Rook. I've been a fan of Jack for a long while. He's a spoken word artist, comedian, writer. He has a new book out called um, called Sh- Cheer the Fuck Up, to be, to be blunt. And then brackets, How to Save Your Best Friend. This was one of my favourite conversations I've had in uh, in recent times, particularly over over Zoom. It's often tough to feel you get the connection over Zoom, but it was so great to just catch up with Jack. And he talks; he's got a really good way, and I've I've known this since seeing his his spoken word and his comedy and all sorts. He's got a really good way of talking about really heavy, serious subjects and making them feel so light and so positive and comfortable to discuss which is 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 something that you know distraction pieces has been known for since the the relatively early days since Eddie Temple Morris and 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 Gail Porter both came on and and was so open it's become almost a trademark of ours so um yeah it was great to have Jack on have a listen I think you're going to love it and I think you're then going to want to in fact I'd, I'd be surprised if you can get more than halfway through without pre-ordering his book which is out this week so essentially if you order it 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 will just come immediately so um yeah support it if you can order from a local bookstore there's a lot of independent bookstores that do deliveries and mail order there's a lot of local ones who will do that as well We're, we're at risk of losing a lot of these these places in these weird times so i encourage that um you know it's easy it's i know it's easier to just go on amazon and click and if you need to do that then you need to to do that but in this period jeff bezos the head of amazon has just had the biggest increase of wealth of an individual in 24 hours of any human ever so that's mad and independent bookstores are closing down so if if, if you can make that tiny little bit extra effort order from somewhere else anyway let's go on with the podcast this is the distraction pieces podcast with jack rook Exactly. Well, um, I mean, we're rolling and we've started. I'm joined today by Jack Rook. With you're rolling, right? <laughs> I'm now. Re- I'm now recording, recording but I'm worried that I sound really echoey. I mean, a little behind the scenes. Almost every episode that we recorded of the the beat down when I was on XFM, yeah, had us going. For some reason, every time we'd get in the studio, me and the producer would completely forget how to use everything, particularly if there was a guest, and it'd be pure <laughs> panic, and we would end every every interview and then quickly be like, let's check if it's recorded, because we'd just lose all confidence for some reason, yeah. despite having loads of experience in it. But, I'm, um, I loved that show. That, that oh, has a good. real throwback to me being in my second year of university and having loads of friends around mine to listen to it, because you played... 
one of my friend Cecilia Knapp's songs. You played like yes. she made music for a little bit, and you played one of those tracks, and we were all like, "Whoa!" Oh, that's it was amazing. So exciting. Well, I mean, I'm not sure if we're going to start with the start of this or start from when you started recording again. So, <laughs> so I should mention I'm joined here by Jack Rook. Um, we've definitely started at some point. We've, yeah, <laughs> we've started, but. Yeah, that's amazing. It's it's been so mad because the beatdown was such a a niche thing, but yeah, that's. I mean, since then we've kind of found with podcasts, the niche things can often has, have the most impact on individuals. It might not have the impact on the wider world, but the amount of people I've spoken to who I've become a fan of, who's like mm. I used to listen to the, the beatdown all the time, and again, like when I was doing it i was well aware that we were doing it at midnight on a friday yeah, or sat- it, was, a saturday. it was it was like that but that was the perfect like, time because we used to roll in from the pub and listen it's perfect i was I, I was always recording with the assumption that no one is listening but that was part of the reason <laughs> of doing it at that time and i i got offered like when i was offered that 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 show i was offered 10 p.m 11 p.m or midnight and i chose midnight because i wanted to be the most yeah. out the way I, oh, okay, I didn't want yeah, anyone yeah. to be able to pick it apart because I wanted to, particularly on spoken word, I wanted to leave in swear words if necessary because yeah. it's an important part of language. And I felt the earlier we were on, the more we'd get people who were just passing by who might get offended, whereas yeah. the later we were on, everyone would be there specifically, specifically to listen and understand that that was the, the context of it all. But, yeah, so, yeah, Cecilia is... is is someone I met around the same time as you, I guess, because I booked her... I think I booked her the first year I took in a lot of the um, the Roundhouse c- c- Collective kind of crew. I'm sure it was her... I, I've do you, want me, do you want me to tell you who was in my gang? Yeah, who was in it your was, gang? It was... So, <laughs> it's like, the historically, I think, the Roundhouse Poetry Collective, it's quite uh, interesting. The alumni from it is quite yeah. a, like broad band of people which i think is so great yeah but in my gang we were maybe like year five or six i think we were like the final polar bear year actually the yeah. final year that he tutored it so it was me cecilia knapp uh, another poet called maria ferguson yep i had maria at best of all s- several yeah. times as well yeah she's Amazing. great and uh, another poet called jess green yeah who you must know as well yeah and then there a were a few years later i missed jess for some reason on that initial kind of wave of people in there but yeah she's fantastic as well but it was quite cool because like you you just sort of whoever it it almost became a bit like coming out of drama school when i speak to people now that went to drama school and they spent you know like 30 grand on it every year they're like oh yeah i was in this year with you know this guy's in the crown now or i was in this year with like whatever and i'm like yeah i was the year that jess green did a poem about like michael cove yeah (laughs) Yeah. Um, uh, and like, you know, it sort of felt like it was quite an exciting. I always felt like I was totally blagging it. Everybody else was much more of a, a writer poet, whereas yeah. I just did like funny lists and blagged my way through, essentially. It's, it's one of the things that me and, and Polar initially connected on. So, so I guess for some context, the Roundhouse c- c- Collective was like a workshop, essentially, that happened at the Roundhouse. It was led by polar bear for a long time i assume it got handed over after he yeah yeah it went to bogdan yes oh of course yeah and then it went to bridget minimore who's also another brilliant poet so yeah 
the thing that me and Polar originally connected on was that neither of us felt like we were what people were calling us. If yeah. You know what I mean? People were referring to us as writers and poets and stuff like that. And we were like, I'm just getting up and telling some stories. I feel, and we felt underqualified because we hadn't gone to university and the, that daddy language or yeah. could read Latin or anything like this. That was kind of a certain area of, of, of the spoken word scene was that. And that was, I think the point of the roundhouse collective was to open it up to people and, to tell them, oh no, what you're doing, it isn't just funny lists. It's it's yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's beautiful. It's art. It's it's it's. You may think it's throwaway because you find it quite easy, but no one else, most people, couldn't do that. Do, yeah. Do, do, do you know what I mean? I think a lot of these things, people will often look at athletes and say, "Well, his his genetics allow him to be a basketball player." I could never have been a basketball player. Look at my genetics. <laughs> but I think that that goes across so many different things. J- just because you've got that maybe n- natural advantage, it doesn't d- d- diminish it in any way as a as a skill. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly thought that when I started doing spoken word stuff, it was, what, 2011, 2012. That, uh, that yeah. was the year that I did that that project. And it was also uh, coincided with my first year of going to uni. So I had really no clue what I was doing in either branches of my life, both yeah. writing these like weird poems and also doing like a journalism degree. And I kind of like, I definitely think that it, it, it was so nice to just like write stuff. And even if it was shit, I could laugh about it being shit. If yeah. that makes sense. I could yeah. kind of go, especially now I look back and I'm like, fucking hell. Like, in the in the book, I, sp- I I talk about my very first poem that I wrote, which had a line where I rhymed "daddy" with "Maddie McCann," and wow. everybody. I remember doing the bangs at the gun poetry slam, and one of the like it was always th- that poetry slam. A member of the public was the judge, yeah. and this bloke coming up to me and being like, "That Madeline McCann joke was upset," and I was like, "It wasn't a joke. <laughs> it was definitely not a joke. I'm not the lowest form of wit is Madeline McCann jokes. I I'm not." done that and it was sort of like they were were so bad the rhymes were absolutely dreadful but I look back on it with such fondness because it was exactly what you said it it, it was a completely kind of like equal footing to start writing like you if you just if you were able to just formulate sentences that was enough of a qualification to do it and then you just sort of refined and honed yourself and like figured out what it was that was your particular skill like I much preferred just sort of performing and talking and speaking and kind of actually being on the spot rather than writing something in full and that kind of was like my way into sort of doing more kind of stand-up-y type stuff or or, or that's that's what i loved about the roundhouse about having the roundhouse collective at at festival on the spoken word stage i used to book was you you were kind of seeing people in still figuring out what they were and who they were yeah i'd 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 see i'd see cecilia for example and i'd be like this is amazing but i think she's a playwright or a scriptwriter rather than necessarily a spoken word artist or whatever and i'd see you and go i think jack's a stand-up yeah, I think he's a stand-up. There's poetry in it. Rob Alton's another perfect example of that. Of yeah, yeah. He, he headlined at, at, on that stage, and he was so nervous because he was like the like the headliner the the night before was Kate Tempest, 
And Kate Tempest yeah. and Rob Alton's poetry is very, very <laughs> different. But their control of the crowd is exactly the same. And the warmth yeah. and excitement that people get from their performances is exactly the same. So I always remember him, like, again, Rob is one of my proudest moments at Best of All because he was so convinced it wasn't going to work. And then within, I think, five words, I think it was, I knew it was going to be one of the best things that we ever had there. He just came out and started yeah. and everyone was so on board. I was like, but, he, and you could see it in his face. Grab. You could see him go, oh, it's going to be all right. This is going to be a fun hour kind of thing. He's just like, he's he's the most like wonderful performer i think because actually the most exciting thing about him is the uncertainty of kind of being like oh how's this gonna go are people gonna get it and (laughs) because i i mean i hosted banks of the gun for about two years yeah um and you know and rob would perform like most weeks and eventually you know rob kind of built up this very much sort of like cult fandom type thing you could tell the people that were there for rob orton which was great but then sometimes if i if we ever did a gig as a banks of the gun collective and we weren't in the sort of like safe upstairs at the roebuck pub then like where we used to always do the night every week then you could really it was a risk who was going to flop and who was going to fly sometimes laurie bolger would completely fly and rob orton would completely flop and sometimes i would completely like there was that was quite interesting because it really is all about the room and how audiences are sort of willing to i suppose like take on material that's a bit absurd and a bit kind of like wacky um that but that's also kind of why i think that's why I'm almost quite glad that Rob has never gone, oh, I'm just going to be a stand-up comedian. He's kind of kept his fingers in lots of different pies because he is exactly that. He's a bit of everything. He's like a big pizza. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm also so glad that his podcast is doing so well. Amazing. It, it's it, just... it, it won the best daily podcast at the British yeah. Podcast Awards. <laughs> but yeah, it's exactly that. I think there's something exciting about those acts where... They're, they're different wherever you put them, and that's what makes them exciting. And I think I think you're one of them. Again, I think y- your delivery and style suit stand-up perfectly, but you'll talk about some heavy stuff that not all stand-up crowds are going to be are yeah. going to be up for. And and Rob's exactly the s- s- same in that. He's I've talked to him on on his highs and his lows over the years on touring because particularly on the touring, on the headline touring circuit, if people just see, oh, there's some comedy in town tonight and yeah. they go and get Rob Alton, it might not be <laughs> what they're expecting. Cause it, but if, if, if that, that might be the biggest surprise and treat of your life or it might genuinely be your evening ruined and you feel yeah. like you've wasted your money because he's not <laughs> TV m- mainstream a comedy so yeah he's not going to come on and do like loads of dick jokes no he'll do like really artful dick poetry that's a bit bizarre but it's (laughs) never going to be like it's never going to be bj jokes and the beautiful thing again this is just turning into a podcast about rob but the thing i enjoy the most is (laughs) that will win us an award (laughs) yeah yeah the, the thing i enjoy the most about watching him is he goes through the show with you as an audience member Mm. he's equally as aware that there's points like it could fall off at any point and he doesn't hide that he doesn't just go here's my show i'm gonna stay in bang 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 love it or hate it he's very aware you're very aware you're all i don't know it feels like such a shared experience um but how did you find that kind of 
that period of figuring out what you were on as a performer. Do you know what I mean? Because if if you're if you're in a workshop with being taught by polar bear, uh, uh, with Cecilia, with Jess, with with uh, uh, Maria, all these, then you're going to have a natural thing to lean towards. I, I always think the first period of people at that time doing the the, the Roundhouse Collective would produce a load of mini polar bears. Oh yeah, we all sounded and, exactly like and, him. <laughs> and then and then they would start the the exciting part would be where they go off from that. So <laughs> so how was that finding out? Because it is weird. You get influenced by those around yeah. you and those yeah, that you're yeah. excited and, and you respect and I yeah. think I was I was probably and I, I mean if the if the girls hear this and they might be quite annoyed at me i think i was the one that least sounded like him yeah but there was still a certain like rhythmic i mean his writing so amazing yeah that you couldn't help but sort of like want to emulate the sort of like pausing and the sort of like form of what he does and but he was very very i think he was aware of it and he was very good at like tailoring advice to each one of us as individuals so polar bear would always say to me what you need to do is write stories. They need to be like long and you need to not just be doing like, because you can do throwaway jokes quite easily. So if you just write something that's much longer, that really has like a beginning, middle and end and then you pepper them in, that's going to really grab people. Yeah. And I like quite arrogantly, I mean, I, I hosted Banks of the Gun for about two years and then I, and I, and I was, I had like a good, maybe like 10 minute set of like bits of comedy storytelling and little like list poems. And then I just jumped to straight to writing an hour long show for Edinburgh yeah. because I, A, got Arts Council funding. There's, <laughs> I can't really be like, it was this amazing creative idea. I got money to do it. Yeah. And, and B, because I think he was exactly right. Like I sort of had so much to say that I would either say sort of nothing at all or everything in like three minutes. Yeah. So, so actually to have a whole hour long show is kind of like definitely the, the making of me as a writer performer because it allowed me to properly tell a story from lots of different angles and to bring like six different like narratives into one thing if that makes sense yeah yeah um and i think he was just so good at at, at, at kind of knowing how each one of us could develop more yeah. um and that's sort of what you want I, I i still say and i think i i say it in the book like he's the best teacher i've ever had even though he wasn't like he you couldn't really you could never quite make him like your best mate like you sort of could like your drama teacher at school i was yeah. so used to being like <laughs> yeah. teacher's pet at school like drama teachers would be like oh we'll get jack to like put on a dress or like the english like i could kind of charm them whereas with him he was very much like all right <laughs> yeah. you were like oh okay you're gonna really really you can't just sort of like charm your pants off type thing you you yeah. actually have to do the work and do the writing and not turn up like 20 minutes late with a hangover because the workshop was on a sunday morning which at like 10 a.m which when you're in your first year of uni was yeah. quite a difficult commitment to keep <laughs> yeah. up so i would often just <laughs> walk in at like half 10 having like commuted all the way from like harrow or whatever on like yeah. three rail replacement buses because it was a sunday and then just be like i've written this poem it's about my dad he's dead is this all right <laughs> and he'd be like you're 45 minutes late read your yeah. poem um and it was sort of like i just used to write all my bits on the rail replacement bus going there which i thought was kind of like 
now I look at it as like the most ironic thing that I was writing it on the bus, like yeah. homework. Yeah. But then I really, it was so exciting to actually like, I mean, it, it, it kind of became a bit like group therapy in many ways, because it was sort of like all of us as young writers from different places around the UK actually coming to this like venue, which you know, the Roundhouse obviously has had everyone from, like... I mean, it literally had, like, Britney Spears three years ago. Yeah. So, you know, like, Megadeth. Um, and so there would always be, like, queues of fans outside for, like, whatever band or act was on. And then we'd sort of just, like, push past them and then sit in this windowless room and just, like, share all of our trauma for six hours <laughs> and then go it. and get a kebab after. Like, it was... And it, w- it was also, like, free. It cost, yeah. like, a tenner for a year, which yeah. was amazing. The process um, of that is 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 a really kind of a stumbled upon bit of genius, I think, of writing on the the bus on the way there. Because when you've got that kind of time limit and you're false, you don't have time to second guess yourself. And often, particularly with spoken word, you'll go, "I need to put something emotional in there," so you'll yeah, open yeah. up about Shoot stuff that you in. might have of 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 shielded a bit more. I always remember it talking to Sage Francis and, and one of his songs, The Best of Times, that seen as his most open and emotional, he'd got the chance to work with a producer he'd always wanted to work with and there was one day it was going to happen. So he literally travelled there. On the way there, he wrote this piece, yeah, performed it, recorded it, and it's up there as either his most iconic song or one of his most iconic songs, but I think it's because it had to be that, right, I need to just... I can't hide things. I think yeah. poets are really good hiding things in plain sight. Yeah. Something can seem really open <laughs> and honest and really you've wrapped it in so many things that no one can really see it. So you don't have to actually feel <laughs> exposed. Whereas you don't have time to do that on the on on the rail replacement bus on a yeah. Sunday morning. <laughs> oh, 100%. I always remember I made a documentary about two years ago about um the rapper mia who yes. i've always been a long-term fan of yeah. a very sort of bizarre like i think most gay men have got like one kind of female pop star that they yeah. like grown up loving and mine was never like gaga or britney or madonna it was always just like her because she Great was so, such a sort of strange but like amazing character and i still you know she's she's a wild ride of a person but i do remember when i was interviewing i interviewed her at festival 2018 actually what i i would like to think of it as the last ever interview that ever happened at festival because she yeah. headlined like the final night and i yeah. was like and then we did the interview backstage and i was speaking to her about stuff and she at one point told me that when she wrote paper planes she just woke up one morning she recorded it in the morning she hadn't even brushed her teeth so and she just like wrote it on the fly she was just yeah. like no 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 and i was like and then she just recorded it and the first vocal that you hear in the song is the first take it was just that was it Amazing. she was like my teeth were grimy <laughs> it was sort of a bit gross Amazing. and i was a bit like that probably i mean that song to me i'm still like it's one of the greatest songs of all time yeah i, I yeah. think it's and I remember you did a, a... Do you remember you did a... I can't remember, maybe it was like a mixtape you did. Like, you did like a version of it. Because yeah. Straight to Hell by The Clash, when I was a kid, weirdly, was like one of my favourite songs. My yeah, dad loved same. The Clash. Yeah. 
and I sort of like rem- I can remember dancing to it at like four and having no clue of it being this like incredible kind of poem about immigration and like America. And, like, the best Christmas song. It's a Christmas song. It's a deep Christmas song about about immigration yeah. and exploitation. But yeah, I did kind of a version of it when we were uh, were launching my club night. So mm. I kind of I did an extended remix that brought the Clash bit in and then wrote. I can't even remember what I wrote, just some nonsense to go over the over the top of it, and yeah, well, but it's it a was, classic. It was strange because I think Paper Planes as a song, and this is what Maya was saying. She was like, "It's weird writing a song that's essentially about immigration," and yeah. and ha- it basically took inspiration from the song it had sampled from. It almost felt like a kind of like straight to hell two point type yeah. thing. Yeah, but have like loads of kids dancing to it at their sweet 16 birthday party without yeah. any clue about Doing what the, the lyrics were about yeah, those of white of kids all. just like that yeah and but i was a bit like i think i started that because i was like five dancing to straight to hell yeah. <laughs> not having a single clue what it was there's just something about that beat i think i, I that... think the biggest the big, <laughs> my favorite example of that to this day is sound of the police by krs1 yeah that is an intricate piece about the plantations and the evolution of, p- of police coming off the back of slavery yeah yet in a club whoop, whoop, that's, <laughs> that's all it is it's, it's whoop whoop and it's like you're dancing to this really powerful song but it's just it's, whoop whoop it's the one song that's always used in like a really shit BBC Three urban sitcom as well. It's like <laughs> yeah. what white people think is like the hood. It's just like yeah. everyone like, yeah, yeah. But that's sort of it, isn't it? I suppose once you've put out something, you don't, you can't control how it's taken. You know, yeah. you can't really control the parameters of of how either successful or not. I mean, I think it's the same about Lil Nas X now. Yeah, I'm yeah. like, I think. He's amazing, just because yeah. I'm like, how fucking great that you just were like, I really want to do this, and I'm just going to put this out, and it just like flies like that, like yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. So, so is you spoke about polar bear p- pushing you to write long stories with a beginning, middle, and an end, um, yeah, and obviously as this podcast comes out, your book comes out in a couple of days, um, yeah cheer the fuck up how to save your best friend how was it writing a, a, a book i guess part of it came off the back of, <laughs> of getting that edinburgh show that you explored a deeper longer subject was yeah that kind of part of the journey i do not particularly think that i have written the book in a way that i would have if it, if I was writing about something completely, I would almost love to write a book about a completely new topic. Yeah. I think because I was writing something where I had like three Edinburgh shows worth of material to take from and silly poems that I'd done and like diary entries from when I was like 15. Cause yeah. I, my, my dad died when I was 15, 2008. Yeah. And I pretty much the month after he died, my mum, which is probably like the, the maybe actually was like the best thing that ever happened to me. My mum was like, okay, we've got some money left over from his funeral and I want to buy you a laptop. I just want to get you your own thing. So you're not just using this like crap computer that we had. And I was like, okay. And I found on Comet, 
if you remember Comet, the yeah. old the old electricals yeah, right. giant, I found a refurbished MacBook and I was like, I want a white MacBook. I just want to be one of those people that's got a posh laptop. So I got this white MacBook and it was like that I put all of my grief. Oh, I just I just pelped on the peas there. I got this white MacBook. Um, I put all of my grief into whatever that MacBook could do. So whether it was just like writing pages upon pages upon pages or making terrible garage band song after terrible garage band song, writing really sort of like quite crap lyrics that I thought, oh, maybe these will be poems. Like I just sort of put all of those experiences of loss and the way I articulated it into this machine and then was like, one day I'm going to do something with this. And I've weirdly like kept that MacBook in as good condition as I possibly could because I was just like there's so much stuff on here that was just all of my thoughts from like basically September 2008 till like I went to uni like September 2011 yeah and it's a really interesting thing to look back on which I did for the book because I sort of noticed how I just stopped being a child like I just it it was almost quite depressing depressing rereading it because I felt really sorry for 15 year old me because I was just like god like you're I kind of hadn't hadn't really I think the human mind and the memory is amazing at like kind of wiping down trauma slightly it kind of like scrubs it up a little bit so that you're not just constantly in like the jagged edges of it yeah and it was just amazing to sort of go back and go Christ like I was a 15-year-old kid who just turned 15 who was worried about, like, losing our house and was worried about, you know, what my mum was going to do and was worried, like, about... Uh, you know, a big thing that I kind of had forgotten was that, like, I, I, I had always known that I was gay, I think. I was pretty sure. I was like, OK, I am, but I just completely... When your dad dies at 15, it's like, oh, being gay is the least of my worries. Like, I just, I kind of deleted it. I, like, didn't really have that kind of puberty moment where I got to, like, 16, 17. Like, it came to me much later. I think I always knew. And, I mean, I must have always known because, like, you know, I wrote, like, horny pages about how much I fancied Eric Cantona. Like, you know, (laughs) you don't fancy Eric Cantona and not be gay. Yeah. But, um... Although actually, I actually know. I think we all fancy Eric Cantona a yeah, little bit. Yeah, it's quite. Fair. Um, yeah, it's quite fair. But um, it's the yeah, it um, was the collar. It was just there was there was a certain <laughs> he could be collar. manly and 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 effeminate at the same time. Somehow, yeah, it's a gl- glorious thing. Um, but yeah, so it was. It was you know going back over that stuff was quite interesting because I sort of it actually really helped me understand a lot of my negative qualities now if that makes sense because i can sort of see where they the seeds were sown so to speak actually writing the book weirdly has probably been one of the best experiences exactly for those reasons because it's allowed me to sort of retrospectively kind of analyze myself in a weird way yeah but then it's also been really hard because like writing a book's fucking bollocks (laughs) i don't know why anyone does it it's so hard it goes on forever and (laughs) and it's like yeah it's just so so it's a kind of mix but i i mean i'm i'm really i'm proud of the kind of the range of of the sort of stories and the ground that it covers. Yeah. And because it's, it's, it's part kind of comedic memoir, obviously with heavy stuff in there, but also part guide to, to, 
tips on how to cope with certain things and yeah and, and stuff like that right and i think i think i kind of wanted it to have a bit more of a practical element because you know when i was back in those sort of that first day of uni that first year of uni when i was doing the roundhouse poetry collective at the same time i also started volunteering for calm mm-hmm. um which as a charity back then campaign against living miserably you know, they've grown so much. I mean, they're huge now, but they really weren't back then. I think actually you were one of the first sort of real like, ambassadors of them. Yeah. Kind I of s- like speaking about them as a, as yeah. a service and I as s- their s- magazine. I working with them when it was just Jane and one other person. And yeah. again, it's kind of, it ties into to your, your book and your story. The reason I started working with them was because years before a dear friend of mine had taken his own life on, on his 21st birthday. So I yeah. kind of experienced that. And it's you've had a very similar kind of experience in your life, right? Yeah. I mean, what was quite strange to me is that... So I, my friend Ollie, I, I met at university and we mm. bonded over... The, I mean, I have this in the book. The first chat we ever actually had, the first friendly chat we ever had was about you. Because he was you such me a big fan of yours. It was, it was yeah. such a mad... Uh, yeah. Like, you, you're kind of... You really... The, I mean, that kind of whole era of just, like, listening to the beatdown and, like, that kind of thing, it really sort of encapsulates those years for me of, like, me and him. And he was very different to me. So I met Ollie. He was in his second year. I was in my first year. We were both studying journalism. And he was your, like, seaside town lad's lad. He was yeah. five years older than me. He kind of thought he was a bit of a geese. He, like, you know, he was always a hit with the ladies and was very much this this character who I, I thought, this is somebody much more confident than I am. This is yeah. somebody who's got, you know, chutzpah, so to speak. Yeah. And then the more I got to know him, and I, the reason I got to know him is because he was working at the student radio station, and I was like, oh, maybe that's something I kind of want to do. And we kind of kind of struck up a weird friendship because he had found out I was doing this poetry course, and he was like a huge hip-hop fan, loved poetry, loved writing, it, but it was something that he very much did separately, quietly, just for himself, just for his own, like, catharsis. And... Our friendship was mainly kind of like me encouraging him to perform and to write more and to kind of be more confident about that stuff because it was only in that stuff that I knew about his mental health difficulties, that I knew that, you know, he was sort of bipolar and then misdiagnosed borderline personality disorder. Like, he was constantly trying to define what this other thing in his life was. And... I, I, in my mind, I was a bit like poetry and writing had massively helped me to process losing my dad. Like it was, it really, really, I mean, I, I, I'm sort of conscious in the book that I don't, I'm, I'm slightly worried because I sort of, there's parts of the spoken word world that I, I kind of gently slag off because it, that, you know, there's sort of annoying stereotypes and, within and, it. And but, another thing that me and Polar Bear <laughs> bonded over was... Slagging <laughs> off spoken I, word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I won't go into too much detail, but whenever me and Polar Bear would meet up for a drink, and sometimes me, Polar, and, and Kate Tempest, the, the first hour or so, 
would be what's currently annoying us in the spoken word scene, yeah. and then we'd get on to actually having a nice conversation. <laughs> I mean, it had its flaws, definitely. <laughs> but at the same time, like, it completely put me on a different path that I would not have been on as a human being, or as just a young person that had gone through a lot of traumatic stuff and, and yeah. still had a lot of traumatic stuff to come, so to speak. Yeah. And so, you know, Ollie... I used to take to Banks of the Gun and I used to take him to the open mic nights and I like I maybe took him like six or seven times and it was like the eighth time that I was like, You have to sign up. You just have to do it. Even if you're reading it from your phone, just who gives a shit? Just do it. Because it will it will give you something. Even if you don't like it, it will give you that chance to like share it. Yeah. And I, so he signed up and then he would drop out or he would go missing. And then yeah. it got to like maybe like the eighteenth time and I was like, You're doing it, I'm locking the door, I'm hosting, you're on the list, I'm calling you up, I'm making you the hatterlist even, which was like the hype girl for Banks of the Gun. Yeah. And um and yeah, and he performed and I mean he did it like shoulders like up, shaking, holding his phone and he was amazing, but it was the most nervous performance you've ever seen. And he like won the slam and the, the judge was completely somebody random. And like, it was so brilliant to like, see him just use like writing as this, this almost like this sideline to him being this sort of like cheeky chappy lad. Yeah. And like, you know, I find it sort of, it's very strange to me to talk about because you know, I also involved Ollie in lots of calm stuff that I did. Like, we did a fundraising, we did a calm fundraiser together. We did like gigs. He knew about calm. We had the free calm zine magazine at our uni mm. and we'd read it. And like, you know, he was very aware of those services. And I think what I've particularly found, especially with a lot of the narratives around mental health and young men, is this sort of this kind of thing of we never knew how bad he was we never knew he didn't know how to get help he like there's this kind of like idea of of it's always a kind of a secret that's been kept yeah. and that obviously is very valid in quite a lot of cases which is sad and but when mine it was like oh no we've spoken about this we have addressed it head on i yeah. am not fully aware of his history but i know enough to know that i need to keep an eye on him and check in with him yeah. And, you know, it was kind of very difficult then. And, and I mean, I sort of, in the book, it's sort of very strange to reread over because it's such a bizarre story. It's very strange, like, like you kind of couldn't, it's one of those weird things in life where you're like, oh, you just couldn't write this and it'd be believable. But yeah. I had decided, I had just graduated from uni, Ollie had graduated the year before, and there was maybe this just one year period where he was kind of struggling. He was like in that newly graduated, trying to get a job in the media whilst also being like working class and having no fucking contacts whatsoever. Yeah. And he got little jobs here and there and he was doing all right. And then he would just sort of go on a bit of a slump. And then it was like, I can't really afford to stay in London. And then it was like, I can't really afford to be doing like journalism, music journalism type stuff. And so he moved back home, back to sort of Bognor, uh, Chichester area. And I, meanwhile, was also skint and had just like graduated and was living in this like mad property guardianship in Hampstead Heath, like literally on the Heath with wow. like 14 other people. <laughs> it was just like the most mad kind of weird, chaotic yeah. experience. And I was like, I'm going to write a show and take it to Edinburgh because I've managed to get this Arts Council money. And 
I had pitched the show to lots of different producers, as you do for Edinburgh, and hadn't really heard back because I I'd done like a bit of hosting, but I was not I wasn't like an established act by any means. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then I I did the final pitch. About two weeks before my final pitch, I spoke to Ollie, and it was the first time I'd spoken to him in a long time. And I could hear, I could hear in his voice that he wasn't great. And I also wasn't great. We were both sort of in a bit of a bad place. But we made, kind of made all these plans that we would meet up and he'd come up to London and he could come and stay with me and we'd do some stuff. And, you know, I think when you graduate uni and people move away, that kind of trying to keep in contact becomes just naturally harder anyway. And then I had this pitch for a venue called Underbelly and it was at the beginning of March 2015 or whatever. And I, that morning before I had gone to Calm to do a, a, a bit of volunteering and B to like print out, you basically use Calm's printers, like, <laughs> just sort of like mug them of stationery to so I could print out my pitch and proposal to give it to the producers because it was my last chance to get into the festival. Yeah. And... Um, and so I left Calm and I went to Underbelly. And as I was on my way, I kept on getting a missed call from my friend Claire, who was mine and Ollie's sort of mutual great good pal. And I kind of was like, I, I just instantly knew. And I mm. can't really explain. It was like, I just thought, she's missed called me three times. He's, he's not here anymore. And that was just all that could come into my head. Yeah. And so I was walking out of the tube on my way to this big pitch where I'd like printed off a budget. I didn't know how to explain and all this shit. And it was a, it was a show that was essentially about my dad dying and me and my nan kind of co-wrote it. And it was sort of about that experience of losing him. And I called my mum and I was like, I'm about to do this pitch. And I think my friend Claire is about to tell me that my friend Ollie has taken his own life. And my mum was like, well, that would be absolutely bonkers, wouldn't it? <laughs> she, bless her, I feel so sorry for my mum. It's quite dark laughing about it. But she completely talked me out of thinking that. Yeah. Which, thank God, she did, because I would yeah. have gone into the pitch with that, like, anxiety. And she was like, you're being stupid, good luck. And so I went in to do this pitch with the producers, and I was explaining the show and what I kind of wanted to do in Edinburgh. And the missed call, I just kept on getting the missed call throughout the pitch and I was like okay whatever it is even if it's not as bad as that it's something bad mm. and so I finished the pitch I was at Underbelly's office I went downstairs and I called Claire and that's when she told me and it was this very strange sort of feeling of being like oh wow he's actually sort of done it I kind of never really believed that he would yeah. Or, or, and, I, and I guess it's because, A, you never hope that anyone would. But I'd never... I hadn't really clutched that things had got that bad, so to yeah. speak. Yeah. And then I couldn't really do much with myself because I was sort of in this office. And then one of the producers came down and I'd, kn I'd known... One of my friends, Dan, had worked at Underbelly and I'd sort of explained what had happened. And then one of the producers came down and she was just like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And I was like, yeah, I kind of don't really quite know what to do with myself. And she was like, well, the only thing I can say is we've, we've, you, you smashed the pitch. Like we've given you a show. You've got a slot. It's like at 4 p.m. It's in our smallest venue, but we'll help you financially with the show. We'll take it on. Like, don't worry about it. We're, we want to do it. Yeah. And so it's this very bizarre day of getting the worst news and the best news in yeah. about the same 15-minute time yeah. period. And, like, 
I sort of think that it's it's always kind of been a very sort of strange. So I don't know if the word's like serendipitous or uh, it sort of very much felt like I kind of had to use that opportunity. I kind of got given a blow and an opportunity at the same time. Yeah. And I needed to use the opportunity to help me deal with the other thing. Yeah. And, and like, it made it very hard for a while to kind of help calm, if that makes sense. Yeah. Sort of made it very hard to kind of talk about suicide or talk about, you know, how to help someone because I just was a bit like, I felt like as a calm ambassador for a male suicide prevention charity to lose a close friend to male suicide, I felt a little bit like we well, slightly fucked it there, Jack. <laughs> like yeah, I kind of yeah. took on the blame and the, and the guilt. Cause I thought, Oh my God, if there was anybody you could come to, it would be me. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. obviously again, you, you, it's, it's not, it's, it's also in those things. It's so easy to give advice like you know what you would have said to someone else in that situation but yeah. you couldn't take that you would have let them know they did all they could there's sometimes you just can't do it you can only do a certain amount yet that yeah. doesn't help t- telling yourself that because you're like no, no fuck that i should have done better than that but yeah it's fascinating you've in both those kind of traumatic events you talked about going back over the laptop and looking at you kind of l- logging the period after your dad died. And similar with this is, it's really interesting. It's something I've been looking into a, a lot recently for something I'm I'm writing, but we remember in highlights and yeah. we forget everything that was in between that. And it's really, uh, even more so as people have r- written about any tra- traumatic <laughs> events, it becomes this even more specific fictional version of a highlight because you've got this piece about it. Yeah, Here's yeah. how it was when Dad died. Here's how it was when this happened. Yeah. And you're not actually in the reality of it. And the thing with, as you said, the, the the quite common but seemingly unusual event of someone taking their lives when it's not out of nowhere is that you forget that... Because I've, I've been in situations before where there's someone who seems to be constantly on the edge of taking their lives. And it's easy to forget that that becomes normal, and it has to. There's a level of it that becomes normal and and regular life. It's not this every time it's on the edge that it's drop everything. And it's not that you don't think it's going to happen. It's just anything that is regular, there becomes a normality to it. I was lucky that the person I had it with didn't end up taking their lives. So that kind of, it it, it 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 figured itself out and so on and so forth. But when it doesn't go that way, it's easy to think of the one time it didn't go that way rather than all the other times that you were there and you may have made the difference or it may have gone that way if you hadn't done this or this and that. All you can think about is the one time it did go that way and you you either didn't do this or you didn't, you did do this, but maybe it wasn't enough, or you could have done, and all these other th- thoughts, and that can be, yeah, I don't know. It's 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 the, the, that becomes the highlight that we remember, rather than the grander period where this was going on, and we did so much, and we helped so much, and took on so much, and as you, as you'd give advice to anyone else, there's only so much that you can do in these. These yeah. things. 
I think I think um, I think you're totally right. I think suicide feels very much like a kind of failure of everything. Mm-hmm. So it completely wipes. It, it, it's 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 like a kind of control alt delete type thing. It kind of just anything that you've done beforehand is kind of gone because you're yeah. like, well, the end goal was to prevent this. So yeah. it, it makes you feel like. It makes you feel like a failure. It makes you feel like there's a failure in everything. It makes you feel like there's a failure of the services there to try and protect those people. It feels like a failure of the love and the bond that you have for that person. It feels like a failure of, you know, your yourself and how you can, you know, be, you know, how can you ever be a friend to anybody ever again? <laughs> like, yeah. I used to ask myself those mad questions because I was like, oh, but then... And I know there was definitely a period of time where I was like, I can't really help anyone, if that makes Mm. sense. Mm. And then I actually think what I have come to now is a place where I'm a bit like, oh, okay, I've learned so much from that guilt and from feeling that shame. And I now know that that guilt was was just a part of it. It was not actually valid, you know, Mm. like there's nothing that you really can do. And... And and I think it's a very sort of um, it's something that once you eventually reconcile with, if you ever do, then you can kind of. I almost now feel more confident than I did before Ollie died. I almost feel a bit more like okay, I'm less scared of of the. I guess I'm less scared of getting it wrong. I think that's a yeah. big, big thing that a lot of people have that I spoke that I speak that I've spoken to through calm is that fear of saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, um, and that fear is the worst thing about it. The fear is worse than actually doing something wrong. If you yeah. say something wrong, you can rectify it or learn from it. Whereas if the fear stops you from doing anything, then 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 you've just not done anything. <laughs> Does that yeah. make like? And yeah, I think completely. that that fear is is the worst thing. And my I suppose my gripe, my sort of issue with the kind of mental health. Um, conversation or the landscape that it's in right now or has at least been for the last four or five years is that there's so much focus on getting people to talk and getting people to open up and there's this kind of like big clarion call and like Lloyd's TSB adverts and ITV doing campaigns and all this stuff is great but I'm a bit like if you you cannot make people open up and then not equip the other people like the people like me, the friends, yeah. the family, yeah. with the tools to to deal with that and to deal with those admissions and to deal with the, the any personal guilt and shame that might come from it, but to also deal with properly supporting and helping someone. And that's where I feel like there has been a bit of a gap in that conversation. That, in my mind, is how I reconcile writing a book because I personally feel like me at 26 writing a memoir is the most self-indulgent, <laughs> fucking pricky, <laughs> wanky thing to do. The only way I go, okay, it's an all right thing to have done is because I'm like... I at least know some of those tips now. I at least yeah. know some of those ways of getting over that fear that I'm quite happy to hopefully share with people to help get rid of that fear. Because it's kind of why the book's called Cheer the Fuck Up. I really kind of didn't like that title at the beginning and then I sort of loved it because I was a bit like, for me, I have said that to both people and myself at times and that's very much a line that people view as this incredibly insensitive thing to say which i i agree in some contexts it is but it's also the thing that you say out of just complete like 
frustration and despair and love mm. and like yeah. ex- like you were you're just like please like i i i've when you've reached that point that's when i'm a bit like you need someone to kind of help you and i don't yeah. think that we have in the mental health conversation so far helped the people helping others if that makes yeah. sense i th- i think it's it's a problem of so many of the best things that have happened in recent years, so many of the best causes of movements, to get them to where they are, that that they need the sloganisation and memification of nuanced and complex subjects. To get them across to the masses, (laughs) they need that, but they also need a whole lot more. Um, One that I've been annoyed with for ages is the it's okay to to not feel okay but that's it's pushed around a lot and it's great but it's like well we, we need a bit more context for, for, for that because that could yeah. be read as oh i'm just a bit down it's fine i'll let it pass we should be encouraging people to strive to yeah. get help it is okay to not feel okay but here's what you can do about it yeah do you know what i mean yeah, yeah, yeah. that does because actually that, that it's, it's not okay <laughs> yeah exactly that's my kind of angle on it is it's not okay to not feel okay because you deserve to feel okay yeah it shouldn't just be oh well you know it's fine it's it's such a weird one because it's the intent i completely agree with because it shouldn't make you feel like you're broken or there's something wrong with you everyone has these periods but we should be striving to encourage people to get help in the right way to get encouragement in the right way rather than to go ah it's okay to not feel okay yeah, you know, and, but, and again, it's a weird one because I do think that's such a positive message that's spread about. But now we've got to a point where we need to take it that step further. I guess that's the point with Black Lives Matter and defund the police and mental health and all these things. We need these initial tools to get them to the masses. Yeah, but that shouldn't be where it ends. That shouldn't be. Well, we got our little slogan out there. On yeah, to the completely. next thing. Mental health's sorted now. Everyone knows about it. And <laughs> We've done again, it. it. It was a really, again, like the idea of, of of remembering in highlights, it was a really eye-opening thing to read your uh, a section in the book that, that mentioned me because you sent it through because it mentioned me talking about mental health and I'd kind of forgotten that there was a time where it wasn't talked about and it wasn't yeah. as, as out there and open. And that was, was something that made me go... Oh, sh- shit, yeah. In my mind, well, you know, it's the thing now. Everyone talks about mental yeah, yeah, health, yeah. but at least when I was writing those things and talking in schools or whatever else every now and then, it wasn't as openly out there. And so we're definitely in a better place. Yeah, Because 100%. it is talked about so much more, but as... I yeah. mean, the the thing that you said... I'll, I'll, I'll tell the I'll tell the listeners. Was, <laughs> there was this very clever thing. I think it was you and... Oh, it was, you were chatting to someone. I think their name, they were, they were from a band in the name I can't remember, but they were called Itch. What's the band? Itch, what am I thinking? Yeah, from King Blues. That was yeah. it, King Blues. And you were in conversation with him, I think maybe for Calm. And you yeah. said, like, you have to treat your mind like a gym. Yeah. Like, there needs to be a gym where you work things out, where you write things down, where you draw things out. Like, you have to use your mental health in that same way. Yeah. And, like, you, that was, like, 2011, 2012. And that really was... I've heard that sentiment in different incarnations since then, but, like, that was the first time I'd heard it in that yeah. way. And that was the first time, I think, for me and Cecilia... Nap. We were like, 
oh yeah, you know, we really have to try and encourage creativity because it's helped us so much and hopefully that helps other people. And it doesn't matter if it's shit. Like, you know, really, that's kind of why I put the worst poem I've ever written in the book because I'm like, look how shit this poem is and how shit most grief poetry is. The beautiful irony of that being the line that I used that got through to you as well is I bet, both of us at that point had never been in a gym. I know I said certainly hadn't. <laughs> no. So we're saying we need to prioritise it in the same way as we prioritise our physical health. I wasn't prioritising either. So the irony of that being the thing that got through to us both and the, the fact that I was saying that as if I'm some gym guy that's always down there. Yeah. I'm, I'm really... I mean, also the irony of doing the Round House Poetry Collective, but there being like north london's most famous kebab shop opposite it and yep. i was literally going yep. every week and for like i for every week for a year i ate a halloumi wrap and i swear i convinced myself halloumi was a vegetable i was like this yeah. must be good for you right at that at that period it was an ongoing <laughs> joke with dan and with people in my family that i pretty much exclusively ate pizza as, as my diet <laughs> that all of the if i if i was eating vegetables it was on pizza if i was eating meat it was on pizza it was that was literally all i was eating um I mean, we're getting t- towards the, the hour mark and there's loads more I want to talk about because, yeah, you've touched upon things that you give adv- adv- advice on in the book and there's things like how to spot early signs of mental health issues, how to support a friend who's lost someone very close to him, how to help a friend on a painful anniversary and the bullshit you shouldn't say to a, a, a bereaved person on the day of a funeral, which, again... All of these are really key things, and it's really, as you kind of touched upon earlier, we're scared to talk about any of them. Yeah, we're often too scared to say anything, rather than to to look into what we should say or learn what we should say. It's a weird one for me because on the anniversary thing, the the anniversary of my mate Jamie's death turned from being the worst day to being my favourite day of the year, and I've talked about it loads yeah. because it's the day that it feels like he's still here because all of our mates are posting about him and talking about him. Normally, me and a couple of mates will go around to his mum and dad's and have a barbecue with his brother. And this year we did it over Zoom because we were in lockdown. Oh, uh, yeah. And genuinely, it's this beautiful... And To me, it's become a celebration. But even then, I have to remind myself that it might not be for his parents... Or for, yeah. you know what I mean, or for my other mates, it's that weird thing of knowing how to broach it and how to discuss it. Because I talk about it all the time. Is it honestly? It's my favourite day of the year. I can't wait for it. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's the I think about Jay a lot, but it's the one day where he's at the forefront of all our conversations. And even if I'm hearing the same story of his, his dad again and the same story of his brother again or whoever else, I'm getting to hear them, and it's great. Yeah. Um, so yeah, how did you go about kind of? deciding your key bits of advice i guess in these situations i think it's i mean that summed up is kind of exactly it i think my my mum is probably my um the book's dedicated to my mum because i'm like it would be very easy to dedicate it to all the dead people in my life but i'm a bit (laughs) like she's weathered every storm with me type thing yeah and she's still lost the love of her life and she's still gone through it all and yet she's still like you know, 
I don't know how she did it. I honestly don't know how you have a, a, a teenage son that's just turned 15 who is best mates with his dad as well, because me and my dad were incredibly close, and still just, like, get chicken nuggets and peas and chips on the table at, like, 6 o'clock every night. Yeah. Like, it's amazing. And she, for me, is just, like, the perfect person of trying to take adversity and make it something that has worth and make it so like she, I could say this to her in that way, and she'd be like, "Oh fuck off!" I just like I'm just like living life, in it. She'd just be like, oh, "Fuck!" Like don't flower it up. But it's exactly what she's done. She's just like turned everything bad and figured out a way of creating some sort of a valuable lesson in it. And I think for me, that's kind of what the advice and the tips are. I mean, I, I state quite early on in the book, I'm not a psychotherapist or a psychiatrist and I'm really not trained. Mm. I think I have a different perspective because I'm somebody who's A, lived through it and then B, have like volunteered with this charity since its very beginning sort of, yeah. you know, inception. I've watched, I have been that 18-year-old kid to 26-year-old man who has grown up in that mental health conversation evolving and changing. And at times I've been a very shit poster child for it. And at times I've been very critical of it. And at times I've been affected by it. And then I've clocked out as well. So I feel like I'm coming at it from lots of different angles. And the advice stuff for me is just like eradicating that fear and allowing people to think about, I suppose, not even necessarily that the positives, but allowing people to kind of, you know, take what they... So I suppose it's kind of like a pick and choose, like what is actually going to help you? What are these? Are th mm. There's options, basically. When you Correct. go through something traumatic, you think there are no options here. It's very easy to go, I'm just going to fucking smoke 20 joints and stay in bed every week and not like it's very there's there's almost like two paths you can go down. And in my mind, like there's so many like there's a lot there's. You, it, but it's all about trial and error and for mm. me that is mental health encapsulated in one and i wish that we i wish that that was more of a kind of part of a more nuanced conversation about mental yeah. health is that so much of it is trying a medication and that medication makes you worse <laughs> and yeah. you have to try again so much of it is finding a therapist who you sit down with and you go i actually think you're a bit of a cunt <laughs> really don't want i don't yeah. want to i just say about you i don't want to listen to and you might have to try another therapist and if you're on the nhs that's fucking hard because it's a bit like so much of a quick fix society that yeah that mental health now being at the forefront it doesn't fit into that we yeah. don't have a here's the simple answer it is and again it i for a long time was very anti medicating mental health partly because my mate jay I think the drugs sent him in the wrong direction. That's I think exactly that, the same with me. I was but, really sceptical about it. Over time, I've learned that the right drugs for the right people, it's as dangerous to, to dismiss them bl 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 blindly as it is to say, just give everyone this drug and it will make them, them b better. It is yeah, it's 100%. in that way. Completely, completely. I mean, there's it, some things that lithium do for people that are, like, life-saving, and then and there's some things that it does where it just poisons your whole system. So, like, yeah. it's it's one of those things, because it's still such a, a difficult period. It's a, such a difficult topic scientifically still. Yeah. Um, it's like... But, but I do think that that needs to be 
it needs to people need to feel like they have options in life anyway full stop like that for me is privilege you have privilege in life if you have options of a like just getting out of trouble or b getting out of a hard time like if you have options that's it and it's the people that don't have options that take those darkest of routes and that's sort of what i hope the advice guides do and also like i really you know there have obviously been some very very successful books on mental health that have come out in the last five six years Mm -hmm. and they're all great but like i oh my phone's ringing let me turn it off i apologize it's my (laughs) mum's all right it's as long as it's not clear it's not clear oh god no. well actually if it is claire do give me a call sometime <laughs> it'll be nice to see how you are yeah i mean i uh, uh, oh what track of thought was i on i completely distracted i mean to 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 take it in the in the direction my mind instantly went mental health has become an industry now and there's a lot of yes. books on mental health that are very successful and Again, they, not wanting to slag anything off, but it has, it's like anything, it's become its own industry. Yeah, I guess. That's sort of what I've put at the very, very start in the sort of introduction to the book. I've mm-hmm. tried to sort of say, like, there's no, <laughs> there's no like illustrations of like sad clouds or happy mm-hmm. clouds <laughs> or like photos, <laughs> like stock image photography of people with their head in their hands. Like, yeah. It's, and I'm not going to be there's no inspirational quotes in bold i'm not here to kind of be a guru or anything like that because that shit does fucking sell thousands of books yeah but what it also does is completely strips the nuance that you and me have just discussed it strips away the practicalities of actually having to deal with it an inspirational it's it's the sloganization and memification of of a really serious subject and i and i get that that's a good entry point in Mm -hmm. but when you have literally like stood at the grave of a 27 year old who should still be here i don't give a fucking shit about like reasons to be like still here i want like tips to stop this happening like like i i don't want it to feel like a gift shop mental health i think does go into that like you could just put an inspirational quote on a tea coaster and that's going to keep you alive and i'm like no like reforming the systems of how people access help and waiting lists and 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 making sure people understand the differences between cbt and then like other types of psychotherapy like it's it's i guess it's just yeah it's options it's informing people and it's not i don't know i i kind of yeah i never really want to be unkind about anybody ever articulating their own experiences because it's all valid but i did want this book to sort of slightly stand out as a much more like kind of honest direct but also like funny i really hope it's funny i kind of really wanted it to be like as comedic as possible and it's difficult because i would arrogant me would love to just write a book of like silly cultural essays about being a gay millennial and then i know that it would get printed and put in my hands and i'd just like be like fuck this burn this now like what have i done what use is this to anyone (laughs) your story and your journey of personal experience and of working with calm for so long so seeing all of the different options of of help whether they be therapeutical conversational or medical just makes me love the name of the book even more because you've also seen your mum just go 
just cheer the fuck up. Just, oh, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 the yeah. beauty of that is all the nuances <laughs> in there. But equally, some people, it is as simple as that. And again, it's it's yeah. okay to accept both sides of that. To say, it could just be actively telling yourself to cheer the fuck up. It might not be. Here's loads of other options. But yeah. it might be as simple as that, which seems crazy, but... Oh, yeah. 100%. That's the best thing my mum's ever... I mean, I haven't actually put that in the book. Yeah. Weirdly, I took it out. But my mum told me to cheer the fuck up when I was making this rather depressing BBC3 documentary. And I was just absolutely hating it and having a terrible time. And my mum was just like, oh, cheer the fuck up. Like, this Love is it. what you... This, you know, just enjoy it. So what if it's a bit shit? Like, so what if you don't like it? Like, yeah. just try and take... She's just so good. And... and and the issue is, is she's not a cheer the fuck up. Let's put a plaster over things that are shit. She's like, no, give me, give me the shit. I, I, I unload the shit and talk about the hard stuff. But then also, like, you know, I guess there's one thing that I've, I've I kind of end the book on, and it, and it is this this like feeling of like, there's there's always going to be miserable people there's always going to be a certain amount of misery like calm in my mind i just i like just love the title at the beginning of it when i like campaign against living miserably because i'm like that is uh, a certainty there's always going to be a miserable time but in my mind like and this has kind of been the difficult thing i think about recent times in lockdown there's so much of what i say in the book is about just changing the use of like saying me and just changing it to we like finding other people making it a a kind of communal thing of like actually i don't know like taking your sometimes it's so easy or i've definitely found it it's so easy to just be like woe is me (laughs) why is my life like this why why am i bloody yeah again i've even got a contempt of being gay (laughs) like you could just sort of like do the kind of like you know, sad Olympics for yourself. But then actually I'm like, there's so many different people going through similar stuff and you don't need, and it's the one thing that like frees up generations. It frees up gender. Like, I think for me, it's just always been about finding other people to share that with and getting solace in that. And, you know, my biggest fear and it's you know i finished the book in january and it's an even bigger fear now is that we are losing so many of those communal spaces we are losing community centers we are losing pubs we are losing like libraries we are just losing any place where like those ideas can kind of stem and like that for me is is and i don't just want that to just go onto the internet like it has to be irl so to speak like real life stuff um and like yeah i guess it's a bit like you know i think that i'm gonna try to write something when the book comes out that's that's a bit like how to find a shoulder to cry on that's two meters away (laughs) like you know all all of the sort of sentiments are very much like you know involve intimacy but i'm like there's got to be a way of like of doing it in these times for however long we're going to be like this because yeah you see i mean the guide to these kind of things is kind of the perfect place to to to, to wrap this up on because i mean I've, I've i've not i've i've not read the book yet we've yeah, just talked about it for ages but i'm looking forward to reading po- it but it's coming to you first class post baby i love it on on, <laughs> on on one of the bits of tips it says one of the sections is is how to help a loved 
one accept their sexuality. And it mm. jumped out to me because it's something I want to read because you're going to be completely unaware of this. You, you, you sp- sp- sprung an unawareness on me of I didn't know I'd come to it, had this conversation and it influenced you and your mate Ollie and all this. But one of my, I still see as one of my greatest failings as an interviewer um, was in early days of interviewing people and it was w- with you. And I felt I fucked up massively. Um because it was at best of all. And thankfully, I fucked up even more because the recordings didn't even work. But I was chatting <laughs> to loads of people on the spoken word tent. And I just jumped straight in asking you about being a gay man um, and all this kind of thing. And you kind of said to me at the time, you were like, I've not really f- f- figured out everything about my sexuality yet. And I yeah. felt really, it really made me realise that just because sexuality isn't something I've had to put a lot of consideration into because my sexuality is the norm. Yeah. I then felt, <laughs> oh, I can, and because I'm, you know, I've got loads of gay mates, all this, it's not a big deal. It didn't occur to me that we don't really know each other and I'm just jumping straight in. So <laughs> yeah. what's it like? And you were at that point still figuring th- things out. So yeah, that's kind of st- stuck with me that it's something that I should have been more aware of, of how to broach these subjects and, whether to broach these subjects, I guess. I mean, look, I had completely forgotten about it. Uh, it was a real trauma at the... No, I'm joking, I'm joking. No, but I mean, I think... Yeah, but do you know what? I think... Um, yeah, I, 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 it is... It's. It does take a long time. And I think, you know, it's trying to... Do you know what? It's actually the one area of the book that I slightly worry that I have made it too sort of like gay male if that makes Mm. sense. I wish that I had maybe consulted some more of my friends about it. I hope, I think it's broad enough, but like, I would definitely say that, you know, because it's so nuanced and it is, there are so many different, you know, sexuality is a spectrum in my mind. And so it is kind of ever evolving and it, it does sort of change quite a lot. But for me, I guess it's this sort of like, it's, there's just certain ways that we can be a little bit more, I don't know, like, I still think there's lots of friends of mine now who are straight, who would say to me stuff, or who had said to me, like, oh, we always knew, oh, we always knew. As, as, and you're sort of a bit like, well, I didn't. So, yeah. like, shut up. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah <laughs> like, yeah. I might have had an inkling, but, like... You know, it doesn't, it's not as, it's not as simple as like, oh, I like the Spice Girls. It's not as yeah. simple as like, oh, I'm a bit <laughs> effeminate. I like, 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 yeah. like it's much more complex than that. Are, and actually, you always knew because of things that are completely unrelated to what yeah. was actually <laughs> yeah. going on. You always knew because of your ignorance, not because of your wisdom, because of your ignorance. <laughs> but I definitely think like, you know, uh, there's a, there's a big bit in the book where I speak a lot about internalized homophobia and the mm. many, men that I have met in particular in a kind of dating or romantic capacity that are completely consumed with it and how and both how sad it is but also how like I just can't be around it like there comes a point where you've accepted yourself and your tolerance for that is very low because you're a bit like it's a it's infectious that sort Mm. of inner hatred if you if you start going down that path again then you will just become it you know Mm. um and and it's stuff that sometimes even I 
probably i've probably done what you did i've probably done it to people all the time now because i'm now reached a place where i'm much more comfortable and you you do slightly forget that it's not always like that yeah you know yeah yeah but i think um yeah i mean for me it's just it's really about like listening and it's about like not really making any kind of judgments on how it might turn out don't see it as like a finite thing because yeah. it can change i mean i've known plenty of people that have got to like 34 and gone i'm gay and yeah. and like i'm like great like i i think it's just one of those things that it's kind of ever evolving and, and the more that we try to see it like that the the better almost i i, I remember talking to a, a mutual friend of ours who um he had been out for a good while and on a night out, he met a girl, and he found it harder to come out as bi, <laughs> I guess, rather than just gay. Oh, yeah. Because, because he was like, oh, God, it had been such a big deal and such a big part of my identity to be gay. How can I now be dating a, yeah, a girl yeah. and being attracted to her and everything? And yeah. that was as much of a, str- a struggle. But it is that that greater awareness that it is a fluid thing. And, 100%. again, the kind of the common thing out there that there's no such thing as a as a bi man and and no such thing as a gay woman is that like society will will believe that if you're a man and you're into men you're gay yeah i don't care about bi you're gay if you're a woman yeah you know you probably like a bit of both and all this if you're a man no you're definitely gay yeah 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 it's 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 just horrible like threatening sort of like remnants of horrible patriarchy yeah. type thing yeah. where we're just like well if you fancy men then get away from me um, S- sexuality is defined on the person's relationship with penises rather than yeah. than, than anything <laughs> else i mean yeah i think <laughs> what i would really hope as well is that the book has that i can't i mean this this i think the main three themes of it are probably sexuality mental health and grief yeah. and i hope that you could read it as somebody again, completely it's fun it's fun it's really it's honestly guys it's a, it's a cheeky ride it's, it's but, what i was excited to have you on the podcast because i knew that we could speak on these heavy subjects for 90 minutes and it not I don't feel that you've been depressing <laughs> yeah, at all. Yeah. I think this has been a fun listen. So yeah, I think that's that. an illustration of what the the book is. It's <laughs> there's also some great tips on just like how to go to your first gay club, how to have a good time, make friends with a bouncer, like pretend you smoke because the most exciting stories happen in the smoking area. Love Bring your inhaler yeah, if you yeah. need it. Um, <laughs> but like, I, I think it's the sort of book where if you've lived through those experiences, then you're gonna find it funny and you're going to sort of relate to it but if you haven't at all then i hope it like leaves you feeling with actual tangible tips and advice and like a kind of like way of 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 kind of approaching those things if they do ever come up in your life so yeah that's how i've reasoned with myself for writing uh, a a potentially very self-indulgent memoir (laughs) i love it well that's the perfect place to end on cheer the fuck up how to save your best friend is either available to pre-order now or out now depending on when people listen to this so yeah i'm excited very much, to read yeah. it and thank you for coming on thanks and having for having a chat. Me. i love that i love when these ones just come along naturally rather than i'm going through pr people and all this but we were just chatting oh, yeah. i was like well should we do the podcast next week yeah all right I'm sort of a bit scared for you if you do read the book there is no pressure to read it now by the way oh, i was slightly scared because you do feature 
throughout it. <laughs> I'd like to think of you potentially as like a kind of sort of orbiting guardian that's going to come in and out. If you could just find me a boyfriend now, that'd be great. On it. I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. I'd, l- I'd love it if this podcast caused you to someone heard this and got in touch and that became your long-term partner and i can continue to be this (laughs) (laughs) unknowing influence on your life well thank you very much it's been a bloody pleasure thank you You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was Jack Rook. I kept the intro and the outro brief because we had a good old chat and we got comfortably over an hour. We could have gone for twice as long, it felt like. But um, yeah, I hope you enjoyed that. I think Jack's fantastic. And I, yeah, I hope you all shout about this conversation because I really enjoyed it. It felt like an important one. Um, I think the more people that hear this the better. And the more people that get Jack's book, cheer the fuck up, the better as well. I'll be back next week with more um, more wonderful chatter. I've got so many good, good good guests coming at the moment. I rushed this one out. I've got a few more in the chamber ready to fire. But this one, because of the timing of the book coming out and all that, I snuck out nice and quickly. So yeah, I'll see you next week on the Distraction Pieces podcast. Ta-ta!